Hi, everybody, and welcome to the China Manufacturing Decoded podcast. This is episode 134, 134. And today I'm joined by Professor Neil O'Connor, who is a professor of accounting in Monash University. Uh, and I've met with him a number of times uh, when, when he was in Hong Kong previously. And I've been following what he's been doing. He's been up to a lot of very interesting things, as you will see. And today, the, the main topic is going to be the role of, of factory audits in vetting suppliers and what his new research tells us and basically what, what buyers should really pay attention to, right? So, hello, Neil. Uh, so tell us a little bit about what you've been up to recently. Hi, Renaud. And... Good to have everyone on the podcast. Thanks again. Yeah, just briefly, I used to tell, like to tell my industry folk, and uh, please don't get uh, sidetracked by the fact that I'm a professor. I'm different from the ordinary professor. I grew up mm-hmm. on a farm. I love making things. Uh, I write papers, papers, academic papers that no one reads. And I've spent a lot of time, especially in the last decade, visiting factories in China, working with suppliers on behalf of clients from overseas and I've actually gone in and done factory audits myself so I've actually seen the challenges of uh, what audits pose for buyers that are trying to manage their suppliers at a distance Renault. right right because I've been following what you've been doing for I don't know at least a dozen years and you, you've always been sort of involved in you know manufacturing in China what what's going on what are the the challenges and the pain points and what are people doing and so on right so this is not like a one-off academic exercise here. Uh, you, you, yeah, you, you've been looking into this for a long time. So let's look at yeah factory audit. So before COVID, uh, we extracted some of the data from our IT platform, anonymized it, and sent it over to you because you say, well, maybe there's a you know there's some some nice um, uh, insights that we can pull out of all this data. Right. Mm. So what what are the, the main patterns that, that you identified? Oh, very interesting. I appreciate getting getting hold of the data, Renault, because what we want to understand is some of the relationships between different different activities or different actions that buyers can take and the different outcomes when it comes to the factory audit, the product audit. And like the data is ginormous and your company has just been so busy in doing, you know, 12,000 more audits in the last decade. Like we never had a chance to analyze all of them. But what we did do was we matched about 370 factory audits with the product audit. And so in other words, we just looked at the product audits that were done by factories where buyers have already asked uh, your company to do a factory audit. So therefore we have the factory audit score outcome and we have the product audit score outcome and to see if there is a relationship. Does like does a better factory audit outcome result in a better product audit outcome? If we mm-hmm. knew that, then that could that could help guide our buyers' decisions. Where, you know, do they pull the trigger on a factory audit? Because what we find from your data is you out of 12,000 plus product audits, your company's done less than a thousand factory audits. So obviously buyers may not see or view the value of a factory audit, Renault. 
Yes, and that's um, and we discussed this before. A factory audit is sort of usually at the beginning of a relationship, right? They want to to verify the supplier and the factory. What do they have a quality system? How structured, you know, are their processes and so on? And and this tends to be a one-off job, except maybe bigger companies tend to do it maybe annually and everything as a program. But most smaller companies do it just a, as a one-off job. Whereas for product inspections or product audits, as you mentioned, this tends to be at least once for every production batch and every shipment. So it's not so surprising that um, that that they would do a lot of a lot more product inspections, uh, and that was before COVID. So there there were a lot of buyers who were visiting the factories themselves, maybe or not visiting. Very often, mm. not visiting the factories. Yeah, but Renal, you may want to just uh, clarify the audience and like so the factory audit. You know, I've had done some factory orders for clients myself, where you look at there may be about five or six different sections that you report on in the factory audit like the general organization and housekeeping you've got the working environment like the light noise dust then there's the maintenance of production equipment and facilities and then the quality system overview and so you know across those sections you get a real sense of the capability of the factory operational wise to actually make your product at a certain quality. Yeah. True, true. It does make a lot of sense, let's say conceptually, that a factory that will tend to have a better score on a factory audit will also tend to have better production quality, right? But we never really had the data to back that up. Yes. And I want to show some of that data or what that data is looking like. What I mean is, first of all, in terms of when we look at the product audits, we're actually looking at different aspects of the product quality, right, Renault? Yes, right. It's, it's different. We just look at the products themselves, right? So um, let's say it's a final inspection before shipment, okay? So which is the most common one? Um, so we look at um, the average Quality level. Let's say, the, uh, or, or more, more, um, more precisely, what is the percentage of defective units? You know, in the total number of samples that we pick, mm. and then we compare it to AQL limits, acceptance quality limits. I don't want to go into that, but basically, most <laughs> buyers will set these limits without thinking too much. Right, um, and it actually um, very often they are quite loose, meaning that it, it allows the supplier to. To make even up to four or five percent of mm. major defectives and still pass, you know, with yeah. relatively high confidence on their side. So it's really kind of loose. But anyway, that's one thing, uh, very, very common. And then they would have a specification sheet or whatever they call it, right? Some criteria for passing the inspection. So is it the right color? Is it the right size? Does it function when we press this button and so on? Uh, and, and, and also for, for the packaging, for the labeling. I mean, they have requirements. And if one of these requirements is clearly not met, that also goes into a failure, right? So too many defects in proportion leads to failure. Yeah, and um, depending on the product, you know, whether it's going to be a major defect or a minor defect, yes. So, correct, yes, yes. Yeah. Right. So, you know, looking at the reports that you shared with me, the data, uh, I was able to parse out 
the percentage of times um, minor defects occurred, the percentage of times major defects occurred. And then we looked at the overall judgment made by the auditor on the pass or file in the AQL limits. And then we looked at the final result, which is overall the big, big judgment, which covers the judgment of the defects plus judgments on other aspects of the product. So it's not just the product that we are auditing. We're actually auditing the export packaging, the inner packing and the production status. So there's other dimensions that go in. And I, I guess, you know, we want to share in this podcast about what what is the data saying about the incidence of pass, fail, or hold on these aspects of the product audit. And uh, if I can share that with you, Renal. Well, that would be great. Yes, that would be great. All right. So just looking at the, if we look at, if we just start with the overall Okay, so we just start the final result. So if a buyer orders a product audit, and then what's going to come back as a final result is a pass, hold, or fail, right? And then the buyer may say, well, look, can I have more details of the product audit? And then you'll actually go into detail about why the result is what it is. But mm-hmm. if we we looked at 368 of your audits and we found that the pass the overall pass for if we if we look at uh, let's have a look let me, let me pull this up sure um that's good this is good here we go all right so if we look at the 368 audits that we analyze and they were match with factory audits and we'll talk about the factory product audit relationship later but when we look at the just the product audits on average three percent Passed in terms of the final judgment, there was 60% hold. So that's meaning that that's a report going back to the buyer to say, well, we're holding buyer, you need to make a decision. And when you look at the report in more detail and 38% failed. Now, if we break, if we just zip on to the judgment over the defects, which for most buyers, that's probably one of be concerned about the major and minor defects as per the AQL uh, limits, like major defect. There's certain standards depending on your sample size, depending on the audit level, depending on whatever the buyer agrees to with the auditor. Mm -hmm. But generally a limit is set for major limits. you You can actually fail two and a half percent of the time and then for the standard for the minor you can fail four percent of the time so looking at the data with respect to those defects we find that out of the 368 we find that 83 percent of the reports were within tolerance 17 percent were over the major defect tolerance set for that sample if we look at the minor defects, we find 73% within and 27% over the tolerance uh, set for the sample. And, and, you know, if we look at that, and this is, you know, if I just made a comment here, we may be thinking, oh, then we shouldn't be buying from China because the quality is, why, how can we have 27% or 70% over tolerance? In some ways, it's actually worse than other 
uh, developing economies. So this, in some ways, is more the norm when you're actually sourcing from developing economies, Renault. Uh, yes, um, and the the samples that that you analyze were predominantly in China, right? Um, if we look at places like um, uh, like like Bangladesh, India, Vietnam, it, it might not be higher. Okay. Uh, now, also, let's be careful. Um, let's say we let, let's say let's imagine we had an inspection. Uh, Activity in uh, in Japan, well, the percentage might be high. Also, if uh, if the buyer's quality standard is very very tight, you know, very hard to reach. Okay, so it, it, it there's a lot of things moving here. But let's say generally for consumer goods in general in China, yeah, this is um, you, you you get to to um, expect that some of your batches will be unacceptable. Um, or, or let's say you will not be very happy to accept that. Okay, I most think, of these batches have been accepted in the end. I think but, a big point, a big point for the the listeners here, Renault, is that to just be aware of or have that discussion with the third party auditor to understand what are the tolerance limits set for the sample that your third party auditor is doing on your product. So are you aware of the tolerance limits? So when they come back and say, oh, we've, with more, there's more than 4% over, do you know what that standard is? If more than 2.5% major defect over, do you know what it is? So I think that's just a point of uh, buyers to just be a little bit more um, audit aware of uh, what has been set up at the beginning before the audit is undertaken. Yeah, a bit more hands-on uh, specifying what, what they expect and what they request. Absolutely. Yeah. So I want to move on to the factory audits. And we looked at, we're talking about 368 factory Cities. audits here mm-hmm. and that we matched with the product audits, most of them from the Eastern Seaboard of China, but right. you'll see that factory audits range from less than 35 as a score. Remember what we said at the top of this podcast, that that score, you know, general organization, working environment, maintenance of production, mm-hmm. quality system overview, and then you add that score up out of 100. So we've got a range of factory audits that are at the 35 going up to very high audit outcome of 90. So what we did statistically was to look at the mean and the mean turned out to be about 69. So anything below 69, we saw that as a low factory audit and anything above 69, we saw that as a a relatively higher factory audit. And what we wanted to show or understand was do we, for those factory audits that were higher than the mean of 69, did they have a better product quality audit outcome? And that was Mm -hmm. all we were trying to do here, Renault. Mm -hmm. And so what we do find is that if we look at the overall, if we have the overall product audit results, we find that 30% failed in the product audit outcome when we look at the factory audit grade greater than 69. For those group of factory audits where the grade was less than 69, then we had 
47% of the product audit fails. So that's a, that's a huge difference between mm. the good and bad factory audits that I thought, like, this is statistically uh, significant. And if we just just amplify that a little bit further, if we look at the judgment on the defects, and that is, remember what we said earlier, there are the defects, whether they meet the major defects or minor defects, and then the auditor will make the judgment overall about pass, hold, or fail. Well, if the factory audit is above 69, we find that only 22% of the judgment on defects is failed. But if the factory audit grade is less than 69, 36% were failed. Wow, yeah, just a huge difference. And it speaks a lot to the value of knowing what the factory audit grade would be for a supplier that you're contracting to make your product. And, and you know, we can extrapolate that to major defects. Again, for the very good factory audit grade, there was only 8% major defects over tolerance. For the low factory audit grades, 22%. And for the minor, mm-hmm. 17% over tolerance. But for, for the high factory audit grade, for the low factory audit group, 34% were over-tolerant. And that, I think that's something that no buyer can tolerate when you have that amount of products coming off the assembly line where the, the audit report comes back. You want to put the shipment into the container and get it to the market as soon as possible, but it comes back and says, well, sorry, your minor defects are over-tolerance. Your major defects are over-tolerance. Like, you cannot afford to put that into a container and ship when that happens, uh, Renault. Well, that, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, it can be quite costly. Yeah. Um, this is a, an amazing relationship that you found here. It's very, uh, mm. very clear, very clear. Yeah. Better work with better factories. I mean, every everybody would say that makes sense, but this is the first time I see, you know, data actually making the link get better factory that gets a better score on an objective factory audit checklist. And then it's more on, on average, your productions would be better. Uh, Absolutely. Because generally the general advice we give to buyers and new buyers out there, you know, you, you filter down, you might have three suppliers that you want to choose from Renault and it it may be the case that you you spend a a thousand US dollars on doing three factory audits on three suppliers to choose the best one at Renault Uh, yes absolutely yes Uh, typically um, yeah people might it's it's like a funnel right people might contact a lot of potential suppliers screen them out by asking some questions by email and doing a little bit of background check and everything and then um, factory audit might be on maybe the top one, two, three potential suppliers to right. aid in the final decision. Very common. Yeah. So just taking that one step further, because we're intrigued about, wow, the data is so different here. And we wanted to understand, okay, this this is in terms of the factory audit outcome and its relationship with the product audit outcome. And then we thought, is there some way that we can get a better insight into that relationship so the buyers may not have to spend factory audits on three suppliers when they're only going to choose one supplier? What we, we find two results, and that is 
this association between the factory audit grade and the product audit outcome is much, much stronger, statistically stronger, if the supplier already has already has a major relationship with an export customer in Europe or USA. Mm. All right. And like Renault, you've spoken about this in the past. You know, one of the telltale signs of looking for a good supplier is do they have an OEM relationship with a North American or a German or Japanese or a European brand name? And if 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 they already have that and you can verify that, then that's a good sign. And and the data has actually shown that out, Renault, that when those suppliers, if they have this OEM relationship with a major customer overseas, then this the association between the factory audit outcome and the product audit outcome is significantly stronger. And maybe that, that client could be driving both. And so that's a good thing all around. We don't need to get into statistical gymnastics about what is causing what here, but the data is very, very clear. It, um, the factory audit is a really, it's like the canary in the coal mine, Renault. Hmm. And it's a, it's a tell. Uh, a supplier's export orientation is a good tell. Hmm. Interestingly, hmm. just finishing up on the statistics is that the association between the factory audit outcome and the product audit outcome is much weaker when, and the listeners will be interested in this, is when the product is more complex. So for example, it's a complex electronic component. It was an industrial industrial product. If it is an automotive product, if it's a medical product, then we did not find a stronger relationship between the factory audit and the product audit outcome because there's probably more things can go wrong in assembly that may not be able to picked up initially with the factory audit Renault. Or yes, or maybe the buyer has very strict requirements sometimes. And that of course will impact, you know, the the ease with which a batch will pass a, a product uh, inspection. So this might murk things up, make the, the relationship weaker. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. It's much more much more likely to to, to be the case than let's say for general consumer goods. Oh, oh, absolutely. Because what we did, we we got all the products and you know the whole range of products in the data. And the the opposite is that yeah, for the household items, for the sports equipment items, for apparel, just everything that is much simpler and not as complex a product, the statistical relationship between the factory order outcome, the product order outcome is very, very strong. And just amazingly strong so i just want to uh, i think that's a great takeaway for the buyers we're not trying to sell we're not trying to ask buyers go out and buy a factory audit from renault but just be aware there's that that's another tool out there if you want to minimize your risk especially in these times when you've got border closes and you you cannot go across and really establish that relationship with your supplier renault Absolutely. I, yeah, we, we've had a, a very significant pickup in factory audit activity because, yes, a lot of buyers were maybe sending their teams uh, to visit factories and things like that. It's been much, much harder. So basically, the takeaway from everything you just said so far is 
that there are two very interesting um, pieces of data, right, that can help the buyer foresee the quality of production, right? So mm-hmm. number one is the overall score of a factory audit. Yeah, that makes sense. A better yeah. factory, better organized. And so with proper quality systems, we we'll tend to churn out, you know, acceptable product quality more often. Okay, that makes sense. And then the second thing is whether that factory is already working for a European, North American, or Australian, okay, a, um, I think you said OECD country or, or let's say a developed country, right? Uh, oh, absolutely. They are working with a, in a developed market, yeah, a major as, customer as one of a developed their, market. Right. At least one of their top customers yes. is in a developed market. So mm. these are two very interesting things. I think you also did some other research uh, that provided another very interesting, um, uh, how to say, criterion for, for buyers to look at. Yeah, I, I think this is much more the the worst case scenario that a buyer would face. And um, failing on a minor defect or a major defect is not a worst case scenario because it gets picked up and you can address that. But a worst case scenario is when you put the money down and you you get a box of rocks in the container when there's an actual scam and so i've had the chance you know working with other associates at uh, through global sources they're working with the supplier blacklist data and we can understand and i was able to get access to over three thousand complaints by buyers of suppliers across a range of countries not just china india vietnam southeast asia a lot of countries. And I wanted to understand by looking at this data, is there a statistical relationship between steps that buyers can take and actually reduction in the severity of being scammed? So, you know, at the high end of the severity is they take your money and nothing is shipped. A little bit lower is they take your money and you get a box of rocks. But at the low end is you just get poor quality. You get a delayed delivery. You get something that, you know, there's always something that buyers will complain about on this supplier blacklist data, but not all of these complaints are really the end of the world complaints where you lost your money. It's just that, you know, Where's my product? It's two weeks late. I've missed my Christmas delivery. Like that's not, we don't see that as a, a severe uh, scam here. You know, things happen that are outside the supplier's control, but we want to separate that from the real uh, scams that strategic scams that suppliers are just out there to take your money and not send you anything. And when we put that into the data, we find there are four factors that reduce the severity of the scam. And I'd like to share that with the audience. Well, that, uh, that would be great, now. yes. So yeah. the, the first one, and that's a no-brainer, is that if the buyer verifies the business, that is highly significant with the reduction of the severity of the scam. The second one is, does the buyer have a contract with the supplier? That is very significantly related. Now, we understand that, yes, you should have a contract, but the contract won't save you. You don't necessarily have a contract so you can go to court with the supplier. In some ways, when you're working in another institutional jurisdiction, like the buyer might be in the US, the supplier might be in China, 
and if the buyer's an SME or small, they don't always have the resources and where at all to actually enforce a contract. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't have a contract because having a contract helps to just set out just the expectations of each party. And so, you know, we recommend that everyone have have some sort of contract, no matter which institutional um, legal framework you're working with. Uh, so having a contract reju- reduces the ver- severity of the scam. Next is visiting the factory. Oh, surprise, surprise. Well, visiting the factory, if the buyer did visit the factory, then that's significantly associated with the reduction in the severity of the scam. And the final one was if the buyer had FOB inco terms, which is, Renal, you'll find this interesting because the Mm. other, that's compared with Port, that is the suppliers, often they'll say to buyers, oh, don't worry about... um, getting a forwarding agent or shipping from Shanghai or Shenzhen, we'll send it to your port in Los Angeles. We'll do everything for you. And that's the last thing that you want to get done as a buyer, because if you do that, then my data is saying that it's more likely to be associated with a scam, the severity of the scam. So there's four things there for our audience to take away. Number one, have um, you do the verify the business. So you can you can get a lawyer for a very little price to actually run checks on the business in China or another country and for a very cheap price compared to lawyers back in the US or the Europe. Number two, having a contract. Number three, visiting the factories. You can't do that with border closures, but the next best thing is having a third-party QC visit the factory and find Finally, focusing on just stick to FOB inco terms, Renault. Yes. Now, the last one is interesting. I, some of these are really, I mean, and the contract also, and it's as much the buyer as the supplier. I mean, wherever you see uh, an inexperienced buyer, you know, um, who has no clue how to get the products shipped, you know, that's where they tend to say, okay, you take care of it, you ship it CIF or DDP or whatever, right? Mm. Uh, this is really a telltale sign actually of a, an inexperienced buyer. And mm. inexperienced buyers tend not to feel that there is a risk and they, they, they tend to work with scammers a bit more and they tend to attract scammers definitely yes. much, much more, right? Yeah. So um, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, the contract... Uh, Yes, that makes sense. And it's a little bit the same story. I mean, if the buyer doesn't doesn't have a process to follow, is sort of doing everything like, like they would be buying domestically, you know, uh, they are running a lot of risks. Uh, and also, as you mentioned, it's a great prevention tool, uh, even if you don't want to sue them. And then, yeah, basic basic steps like verifying that this is actually a real company and getting a little bit of information going on globalsources.com and uh, where yep. they have a profile and things like that i mean that's very basic and then visiting the factory or sending someone to visit them right mm. um it, these are very basic steps if you skip these two steps then you could be working with a couple of guys in an apartment uh, and you know Sometimes they might they might not be scammers, but it might become very tempting to them because mm. you you're totally open to anything they say and yep. they take you for a ride. You know, sometimes it's the buyer really creating the opportunity more than. I'll, I'll give scammers. you a real life a real yeah. life example, Renal. I'll give mm-hmm. you a real life example because 
was teaching global supply chain management this semester, and one of the assessments is that oh, the students have to contact a supplier, get an RFQ from a supplier, and do a freight forwarding quotation, and that was the assignment, right? And more than half of the students came back to me and said, oh, don't worry, the supplier did the freight forwarding quotation for us. And that's the exact thing that you we need to tell buyers to don't fall for that. Always organize independently your own freight forwarding. Don't. It sounds great that the supplier will do that for you, but uh, the less that the supplier has a role in the logistics from your port, from the port of the country you're sourcing from to your port, uh, the better. Yeah. Usually, yeah. As a general rule, I would say that yes, mm. because it's connected to payments. Mm. Um, you know, you you um, if you buy FOB, which is what most buyers do. Well, why do they do? Why do they do that? Why do they pick that in a term? Is because they're in control of the, the sea shipment. They know exactly when it's been shipped. There's, mm. there's no games. Like, they're freight forward. It works for them. You know, they get the, uh, the bill of lading and so on from the supplier and so on. But on their side, they know it's been shipped and they know when it arrives. They know they can organize all the stuff on the import side. And they, are, they have their, you know, uh, freight forwarder, broker, and so on, managing it. This is why so many... Uh, companies do it. Now, I know some uh, lawyers uh, will say, well, FOB actually includes some risks that are not covered. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's true. Okay, it's not perfect, but that's what most buyers do after they have a little bit of experience. Mm. Uh, and usually, if you let the supplier ship out, yeah, they, then you're actually exposed to some other mini scams, I would say, where the ship CIF, which means the, the supplier pays for... Um, for freight all the way to the importing port, okay, and uh, and, and insurance. And uh, what happens is that there's a lot of freight forwarders in China that are very happy to arrange it. And instead of charging, for example, okay, let's say they should charge $4,000 to the supplier for that. And then uh, maybe $300 to the buyer for the local fees, because there's still going to be some local fees there, right? Mm. Well, they're going to charge maybe... 2000 or 3000 only to the supplier, but all the difference and more, they will charge to the buyer the local fees. And the buyer only sees the local fees at the last moment. They get the bill and they're like, what? What is that? I never saw that. This is this doesn't make sense. It's crazy. But there's no way to reason with the freight forwarder on that. that sorry, that's that's it. You want the yeah. goods, you pay for that, right? Yeah. So be careful about this uh, I would call it a mini scam. It's something that gets done by suppliers that don't mean too bad, okay? But um, the, yeah, if they can get to pay a little bit less, they'll pay a little bit less, right? But mm. for the for the buyer, it it does feel like a scam. Yeah. So let's uh, summarize some of the things that we've gone over, Renault. So if if we go from the early stage of the filtering sourcing process right to the final product quality audit then we're starting with the supplier blacklist findings that is if visit the factory verify the business have a contract try and focus on fob try and take control over the freight forwarding and have that separate from the supplier okay great all right so you've got stage one risk and that is 
you've got a supplier that's not a scam. Okay, the next risk, stage two, is, okay, it's not a scam, but can the supplier, does the supplier have the capability to make a product? And so that's where the factory audit comes into being. And our data is saying that if you have a factory audit and the factory audit is greater than 69 out of 100. Now, I'm just saying, you you know, if you under if you've got two great suppliers, then you order two factory audits, and then you go with a supplier that has a better factory audit outcome. So, for example, like that, Renault. So you pass the second stage risk of making sure that the factory has the capability to make the product that you want, and then you get to the final stage risk where and that is the product quality audit, Renault. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, and some other steps in between, right? This absolutely. We, yeah, we don't we don't pretend to have a um, you know digitize all the data about the who buying process and then analyze all the relationships that are possible between all the criteria and so on. But these are very important steps uh, that well, experienced buyers can play around that uh, if they have a you know a lot of experience around it and they make their own calls, of course. Every situation is a bit different, but as a general rule, that's very, very solid advice, I would say. Yeah. All good. All right. Great. Well, thank you so much, Neil. Uh, we'll, um, we'll include a link to, uh, I don't know, your, your LinkedIn profile. Is this the best place for people to get in touch uh, with you? My LinkedIn profile. And also, uh, I've posted, I've got over 800 videos on my YouTube, Tech Asia, T-E-C-H space Asia, Tech Asia. So visit my YouTube channel. There's plenty of uh, videos of going into factories. You can see for yourself, especially if you're a new buyer to uh, sourcing from China, looking at some of those factory audits can just give you a real uh, audit videos that I've taken and I've actually got them on YouTube. It'll give you some insights that you wouldn't get otherwise. Correct. Yes, I remember watching some of these videos and it's interesting to see how some of these uh these products actually get get made, you know, the, the assembly process and things like that, yeah. uh, how they do it, how they test it and so on. And it's really um, interesting, I think, for people who haven't been to many Chinese factories, especially electronic factories, uh, they will find it extremely interesting because you have a lot of comments also about what they do and you kind of uh, put put them on the grill sometimes, right? Uh, absolutely. Well, you, you, seeing is believing. So you, you see the order and just, you know, without... Being salesy here, I've worked with Mike Bellamy to create an actual course that you go through. We call it China Sourcing Academy. We put it into Udemy because we found that the Udemy platform was much more accessible. You can actually down download the course onto your phone and watch it while you're in an airplane uh, to get up to speed on different elements of the contract, filtering the suppliers, and all sorts of things to manage your risk in sourcing from China. That was the China Sourcing Academy. You can find that in Udemy. Great. Yeah, yeah. Udemy is, is nice. Yes. Sometimes I watch some uh, courses on, uh, on the iPad. It's, uh, yeah. it's, 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 it's a good medium. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Neil. Um, this is really very solid advice, actually backed by data. I, I, I hope I could say that more often. <laughs> and uh, well, to the listeners, thanks for tuning in and we'll be back next week as usual. Happy to help, Renault. Thank you very much, everyone. Thanks. Thanks again for listening to this podcast brought to you by the Sophie's Group. We're on a mission to provide you with everything you need to manufacture effectively in Asia, including inspections, 
auditing, new product development support, contract manufacturing, 3PL warehousing and fulfillment, and much, much more across Asia's key manufacturing areas. Visit us at sofeast.com, that's S-O-F-E-A-S-T dot com, to learn more and get help. If you've enjoyed the podcast today, please do rate, review and share because it will really help others discover us too.